This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mins. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zielinski. Chris Bowen is the member for McMahon in the Australian Parliament. In his time in public office, he has served as Treasurer, Minister for Human Services, Minister for Immigration, Minister for Financial Services, Assistant Treasurer and Minister for Competition Policy. As the author of the books Hearts and Minds and The Money Men, Chris is a noted public policy thinker and expert. Chris joined me for a chinwag about the future of democracy and liberalism, including the threat posed to democracy by inequality, how Australia can properly engage with India and Indonesia, what the future holds on Australia's China policy, why we should be much, much more worried about global debt levels, and how progressive parties can rebuild trust with the broader public. We packed a lot in, so I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And as ever, please rate and review and tell your diplomates to listen. Enjoy the episode. Chris Bowen, welcome to Diplomates. Thanks for joining us. Long time listener, first time caller. Good to be here, Misha. <laughs> well, I think you'd be one of our very, very few listeners that have become callers, so well, it's uh, very pleased I to I did hear get that. on early. It's a, it's a great listen. Well done. Oh, thank you so much for that plug. We'll uh, make sure that we're putting that out in the socials. But uh, <laughs> um, uh, There's so many places we could start, obviously, uh, but one of the places I thought we could start, it was interesting, recently at the G20, we, uh, leading into the G20, we had uh, Vladimir Putin come out and say that liberalism was dead as a dead project that the West effectively had lost um, the sort of post-Cold War era. I mean, what do you make of those comments firstly? And, and, and secondly, what does it say about the state of the world, you know, given that perhaps 10 years ago that would have been laughed off? Now it's a serious point. Yeah, I think that's right. That's a good way of putting it. I'm more optimistic than that. I think we have to be more optimistic than that. We can't accept that as being the statement of fact. We have to fight back against that. But the fact that a world leader could even say that uh, with some credibility tells you where the debate's at. The one thing we know is that, you know, the Francis Fukuyama theorem of uh, history has ended, liberalism has won, is not, is not how things have panned out. For a long time we thought it was he was wrong because um, Islamic fundamentalism and religious fundamentalism was a challenge to liberalism, uh, uh, and that remains an issue. But also uh, authoritarianism uh, has become a much more accepted framework in many countries of the world to some degree or other whether whether we're looking at you know what's happening in turkey or hungary um but you know the united states is on a different part of the continuum but the the trend is all to populism stroke some form of authoritarianism and at the same at the other end of the spectrum whereas say 20 years ago we might have been having the discussion will the rise of China and the economic growth of China lead to China becoming a liberal democracy? Well, in fact, you know, if anything, um, we, we've seen China's authoritarianism increase, not not uh, become more a liberal country. So um, the fact that we're having this conversation tells you that the world's not in a great state, but I'm an optimist about liberalism. Um, you know, some people question whether democracy is under, under challenge. We'll get to that. But yep, yep, yep. And that's a legitimate question to be asking. And then I, I guess a subset of smaller liberalism under challenge or liberalism as a as a worldview in the international context, it is under challenge. But I think we have to think of ways to ensure 
that it not only survives but prospers. So what are the reasons to be optimistic about it? I mean, it's so obvious to give all the, the counterexamples about yep. the assertiveness of autocracies and, yep. and all the, the sort of perhaps the, the crisis of confidence yep. um, in, the, in the liberal democratic order. So perhaps what are the reasons to be optimistic? Very, very easy to point out the problems. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, just looking around the world, a lot of the, well, a lot of the sort of defeats of, if you like, liberalism or in some senses progressivism have been narrow. So, you know, Trump actually didn't win by, you know, indeed, as you know, he lost the popular vote. Um, uh, And actually a swing of not many votes in key states would have changed that result. Um, UK politics is highly contested. We, we may or may not get into the inner workings of the British Labor Party, but you know the the. the bi- We've got a bit of time. <laughs> we cover all sorts of <laughs> the 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 um the two party system is pretty closely contested in the United Kingdom. Um, and you know you'd be a brave person to predict the result of the next UK election. Um, Macron in France. Now you know we'd all have our criticisms of Macron, perhaps, but uh, you know he's a force of centralist liberalism, maybe slightly to the left. Uh, Trudeau in Canada, um, he's had a few challenges, but he's got one good election win and, um, you know, will probably win another election um, in the next 12 months. So you can look at those places and, of course, New Zealand. I mean, Jacinda Ardern didn't win an election. She won a parliamentary majority, but I don't think there's much question that she'd win an election now. Um, so there are some bright spots, and the fact that the forces of progressivism are being challenged means that we do need to think about what our answers are. And I think we are doing that thinking around the world for you know, parties of the centre-left to some degree of success or, or otherwise are at least asking the right questions. And um, and I, I'm, I'm an optimist, because we have to be, otherwise you wouldn't get out of bed in the morning, that we will, we will uh, come up with the right answers. So, I mean, one of the things that sort of, uh, you know, troubles me, I mean, this sort of intersection of economics and politics, right? Yep. And so, you know, one of the consistent things everyone talks about from a public policy point of view is this rampant inequality that you're seeing mm. um, uh, both uh, within and between uh, countries. And so, you know, can you have a, sort of an increasing inequality where people feel more disenfranchised, particularly when you look at pattern of that inequality where it seems to be regional areas where regions that are distressed tend to you know become uh, less hopeful um, so I mean are democracies and healthy democracies consistent with inequality or, or, or do we have to address one well, to address the other are we addressing them in sort of isolation well we should address the inequality one because it's the right thing to do and two because it is leading to this populism and you can look at inequality through any number of um, frameworks spectra but i think the most useful one for this conversation is is the one that you are giving a nod to pointing to which is geographic inequality and if you look at this challenge to um the forces of the center left or liberalism or progressivism whatever you want to call it around the world it is very much a geographic divide you know brexit won outside london uh if it was up to the people of london um they'd be very firmly in the eu um trump one in rural America, not in the cities. It was up to people of California or New York. You know, Hillary Clinton would be preparing for re-election. Um, and um, Macron won in Paris. Um, he lost in the regions of France to Le Pen. And if you look here to our recent 
you know, kick in the guts election defeat. Yeah. Um, we've got swings to us in the inner city, in wealthy areas, um, in both sort of safe Labor and safe Liberal seats, um, or but the inner ring. We've got swings against us in outer metropolitan areas, particularly in Sydney, uh, which we weren't necessarily expecting, and big swings against us in regional areas, particularly in Queensland. Now, these are people, in my view, who say, you know, in the Australian context, 27 years of uninterrupted economic growth, give me a break. I don't see it. You know, my kid can't get a job. I'm, you know, maybe 45 and I'm, I've been unemployed for two years. Um, um, you go down the main street of Mackay or Gladstone, or Gladstone, so it's a bit different. Um, it's going better than some regional centres, but, you know, Mackay or Bowen or, or Rocky and things aren't feeling too great. Um, and so... the they're saying, what about us? And the straight, if you like, centre-left message of we care about inequality has not appealed to them. Now, it's our challenge to make sure that we do put it in ways which does appeal to them. One, we ensure that the, the product is the right one for them. And two, we are expressing it in a way which speaks to their views about inequality. Because they, 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 are, they, they are, if you like, victims of inequality. They are falling behind in our society. Um but obviously our message of we care about you and care about inequality has not resonated. It is a bizarre thing when you look at um, the, the traditional, I guess, areas that social Democrats care about globally mm. and, and the regional inequality that we're seeing and somehow, whether it's message, whether it's policies, whether it's uh, I think there's an element of uh, attitude and tone about it. Um, but how, how is it that we're just misaligning, we're not connecting somehow? With, you know. This is not a new challenge in some ways. It's more intense and more acute than it has been, but, in a, but it is also not a new challenge. Remember, uh, was it 15 or 20 years ago, Thomas Frank wrote the book, What's the Matter with Kansas? Which was about this very matter. In some countries it was published as What's the Matter with America? But the, the real title is What's the Matter with Kansas? And he spoke about this. He said, you know, and the people of Kansas and Alabama and Arkansas and and, and uh, those states are doing it tough, falling behind, you know, are subject to inequality, have been left behind by the elites and the Democrats have all these wonderful policies to do with that and they are coming, turning up on the first Tuesday in November and voting solid Republican. What is going wrong here? And he put it down to cultural issues, um, lack of empathy with the cultural concerns of people in those in those states, and I think there is still something to that. Mm. And you um, raised that recently, mm. talking about the, whether or not uh, uh, people of uh, religious faith yes. feel at home. Uh, yes, uh, which is, I think, an existential problem. Um, if you look at the United States, the single biggest indicator of voting intention is faith, not income, not ethnicity, not geography. It's faith. If you're whatever faith. Even if you're of Islamic faith, you tend to be you, – you, that's the best indicator that you'll vote Republican if you are of very solid faith. Now, um, again, I think we have a real challenge here in Australia about this. Now, we're a progressive party. Of course, we believe in equality. Um, you know, I voted for marriage equality. I don't – you know, I'm very proud of that. Um, but we need to ensure we are also having lines of communication to people who are, who are economically progressive – and believe in social justice, and in some instances believe in social justice because of the ethos of, that they were brought up in in their church, but also have some concerns about um, uh, you know, social. Uh, they're socially conservative. Um, now, 
I'm not suggesting for one second we need to uh, not continue with the progressive project, but I am suggesting we need to think about how we talk to people of faith, how we bring people of faith with us, ensure that they know they have a role in our party, uh, that they can um, be treated with respect by the party um, and have their views considered both within the party processes and by the party in government. And we have not done that, to be frank. We have... We have um, neglected that as a movement and as a party and we have paid a price I think a big part of the swing against us in Western Sydney and probably in some regional areas was the concern of people of faith that the Labor Party has lost touch with their concerns and their issues going forward people who say to me we just want to know that you'll listen to us we've you know we may have voted against marriage equality but we accept the result but we want to know we've got a place at the table going forward um, I think collectively the party and, and parties at the left need to ensure um, that there is a role uh, for people of faith. Again, I mean, many faiths teach social well, that's right. social justice. It's not antithetical. Like no, the, absolutely. the tenets of religion are in no way antithetical to social democracy. Love uh, thy neighbour, looking after one another. There's plenty within that. Um, quite that the contrary. Quite the contrary. I mean, in, in most religions, as you say, preach love and respect and tolerance and understanding and justice um, which is, you know, we, we might use different words, but it's what we're about as well. Um, but we've lost, the, we've lost the connection with people of faith, and we must get it back. Uh, I don't mean to be melodramatic. I regard it as an existential crisis. Well, that's uh, <laughs> well, that, it's certainly putting it at a high level. Um, so, I mean, this narrowness, how do, how, do, how do progressives, and this is a global problem. You look at it globally, you've rightly identified uh, – Progressive parties, social democratic parties have either been marginalised or disappeared in some countries, even France. Um, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, the French Socialist Party effectively no longer exists. Right. Um, and so, you know, as you say, existential threats. Macron's essentially uh, co-opted that group um, and, and other parts of this perhaps centre-right. But globally, this this retreat from the regions, this retreat from the suburbs, mm. even this retreat from, as you say, more perhaps conservative social values. How do, rather than narrowing, how do progressive parties broaden? How do we become broader? Well... Um, it's no one thing, Misha. It's 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 got to be part of a tableau, uh, uh, um, an embroidery of our party. We need to uh, just look. It's as simple as making sure that we're in touch. We're in touch with the regions. We're in touch with people of faith. We're in touch with people who maybe are at least open to the argument that's put by the populists, that the answer to your problem is less trade and less immigration. Now, you know and I know that's the antithesis of what the answer is. Um, but we have to say to people who are being spoken to in the Australian context by One Nation or even Palmer um, or, you know, the, the liberals in their own sort of cunning way, um, say, look, the answer to your problem is less immigration and less trade. We have to show that the answer is not less immigration and less trade. But we cannot dismiss the question or the issues that we come back to. We're sort of moving off faith now and back to the regions. But, you know, if you're in Mackay or Bowen or, or um, Townsville and the economy's not doing too great, we cannot say you're wrong. We have to say you're right, but the answer to your problem is not Paul and Hanson. We have the answers. Now, the, the essential key to that is we have to have the answers, yeah. otherwise we can't communicate. So but we do tend to jump to say, well, you don't get it, you don't understand the no. data, you don't understand the policies. Yeah, what are you talking about? We've got 27 years of uninterrupted economic growth and you know, unemployment's low and interest rates. You know. 
and the macro numbers don't tell the micro story. They right? certainly do not. Things and I, I when I was shadow treasurer, I used to say this. I used to do a lot of boardrooms, you know, with the country's most senior business people, um, and I used to say to them, you know, respectfully. Because they used to say to me, oh, well, you know, the Labor Party's wrong about this and that and everything's going well. I say, you don't get it. You know, with, with respect, you don't get it. Things look good from here. You know, we're sitting in a boardroom in Sydney. We can see the Opera House, the Harvard Ridge. The unemployment rate in Sydney's got a three in front of it, or, you know, sometimes a two in front of it. And, you know, everything, there's no vacant shops and everything's bustling. Come out with me. <laughs> you mm. know, come to come to Mackay and walk down the main street. Come come to Emerald, Yeah, you know. Um, inland, um, Queensland, um, things don't feel too great out there. And we collectively, not just political parties, but the establishment, if you want to use that word, the economic establishment, the, the political establishment, um, the business community, the elites, need to get it. Mm. And far too much collectively, we uh, haven't got it or haven't communicated that we do get it anywhere near effectively enough. And the door has opened for, you know, that charlatan Clive Palmer um, and the populist Pauline Hanson, and we have to close the door by being more responsive to the concerns of people who say this 27 years of uninterrupted economic growth, I think, uh, is bullshit. <laughs> Quote that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Do you? Do you? No. You don't beep out on this podcast. No, no, that's right. It's it's a, well. I mean, I'm not too sure. Too many kids interested in uh, geopolitics and uh, social democracy globally. But for those that do, close your ears. Um, so look, that was really interesting. I think what you know, one of the things I was keen to talk to you about, and you know, we started with Putin and liberalism, and we, we've we've sort of talked about social democracy. But the question of liberalism, the United States has been the typical bastion. Mm. They've underpinned the global world. The great shining hope of the world. Right. Last hope. Mm. Now, this trade war with China, Mm. they sort of now appear to be retreating from their own system. Mm. Firstly, what do you make of that? And secondly, what's the implications of that war between the US and China for Australia? The trade war will be sorted. It will be. There will be a truce. Um, The only question is when and how. Why do I say that? Because the alternative is unthinkable. Because the only alternative to the trade war being sorted is, in effect, decoupling. Saying the United States and China will decouple from each other and not have trade links. And some people argue for that increase on national well, security grounds. Well, that's about as unthinkable as men and women decoupling. That's what, you know, because <laughs> we need each other, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, China and the United States need each other. And the, the idea that you could have a, two polars in the world, two poles of the world economy with very little to do each, do with each other is just it, the world doesn't work like that. The production chains don't work like that. I mean, you know, half the things that are made in America, the components are made in China, um, and that's not about to change. Now, there's an easy way and a hard way. And that's the only question open to President Trump and President Xi: is do we take the easy way or the hard way? I hope very much they take the easy way. Um, but even if they take the hard way, either they or they, their successors will sort it. Now. It's true to say that in the United States, this is not just Trump. It is a broader concern in the political elite, including the Democrats, that China has not been playing fair in the world trading system. And it's also true to say that in some elements they have a point, and that, that, that President Trump is not always wrong. Um, and he does have some legitimate concerns about um, the world trading system and China's um, place in it. 
but the war, the trade war, is very much not the answer. Now, I'm hopeful that they'll choose the easy way. Either, either they will choose the easy way, or if there's a new president next year. Um, but I hope it doesn't take that long because the implications of a worsening trade war, I mean, don't really need us to spend much time on because they're pretty self-evident. They're, they're pretty bad. They're pretty bad for the world economy. They're pretty bad for us as a trading nation. Um, they're pretty bad for our region. Um, and there's a, even more than the general than the direct implications of the trade war because you can do all the modelling and say, oh, tariffs go up by this much, it'll have this impact and, you know, this flow onto Australia and, and all that's legitimate. But I think the bigger problem is just the bloat of confidence mm. around the world, just the uncertainty created by the trade war and the general bloat of confidence is terrible for a country like Australia. So I, I tend to be on the more optimistic side of what will happen in the world economy and the world geopolitical system. Um, but I'm also, you know, if you like, a, an eyes open realist as to the implications if I'm wrong and they choose the hard way, and it's and it's not pleasant. Well, it's interesting because pretty much the only bipartisan thing that you can find mm. in Washington is the attitude to China. Yeah. Which, yeah, you know, right. And you put it there, the peaceful rise, as you sort of described it before, mm. China's going to get mm. rich, China's mm. going to get democratic, appears to now be mm. perhaps it has not eventuated. Well, it has been peaceful, but it, but but there's been no um, no move towards greater democratic right. And mm. so we're seeing increasing sort of authoritarianism. Yep. I mean, the, the question... To your point, is like it's unthinkable to decouple economically, but there's a real uh, push to decouple on the national security elements. Yes. And so, how do those two things sit together when you consider the this sort of techno nationalism, this mm. uh, around uh, Huawei, the question of Huawei, mm. and and the security of data, and the sort of that element of the debate, and then it's really all the hard. economic points that you've made. I mean, yeah. they seem to be completely pulling against one another, and that's a yeah, it's really hard. And I don't, I don't underestimate the difficulty for any government in the Western world dealing with this. I'm not, you know, I, I think the Liberal National Government here has made mistakes in that space over the last six years, but I'm not overly critical of them because I don't underestimate the size of the task um, or the degree of complexity of the task in navigating that. Now, what you need is a national strategy. Um, so the problem, Mr. is I think you're getting, you're, you're really making this point, is that I think in, in many countries, including in Australia, the economic establishment and the national security establishment shout at each other. Yeah. And the national security establishment shouts, China's terrible, have nothing to do with them. And the economic establishment shouts, they're our largest trading partner, we're buggered without them. And both sides, you know, have some evidence to their cases. The trouble is that far too often it's just the shouting if you actually sat down, you know, in the cabinet, and I've served on both, there's the Expenditure Review Committee, which is in effect the Economic Policy Committee, and you've got the National Security Committee of the cabinet. I've served on both for some years. Um, what you really need is probably a National Strategy Committee to get the intelligence agencies and the economic agencies in the same room and say, okay, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to navigate this? Um, some countries are doing it differently. Um, but we're all faced with similar conundrums. I mean, Prime Minister Trudeau is yeah, right. dealing with this very acutely in yeah. Canada. Prime Minister May is, they've dealt with their own Huawei issue in a different way to many other countries, well, you know, and, and they've obviously weighed up the evidence. Um, and, you know, I've seen the briefings, or not, not the classified briefings, but, I've, you know, I've seen the public briefings about Huawei, and there are legitimate issues. I and mean, our position is the same as the government on Huawei. But... Um, but these are these are tough issues, and 
we've got to stop shouting at each other about them. It's an interesting point. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I'm, I sort of, I mean, to your point about, you know, not to quote Tony Abbott all the time, but, you know, oscillating between greed and fear. But I think actually it's, we, we actually don't oscillate that much, as you say, the people that are national security minded tend mm. to be hawkish and yep. the people that are uh, economically minded. We're in our tribes. Just, yeah, right. And so, tribes. you know, Hillary Clinton said you can't argue with your banker. I think we have a situation where it's difficult to argue with our best customer. And, and China is, you know, touched us up a little around coal exports. Mm. I mean, certainly uh, with the canola oil type situation with the Canadians, as you alluded to there. But is there a case on national security grounds or even just on a diversification basis for Australia to build deeper links into other parts of the uh, you know, regional global economy? Absolutely. Uh, this is the key question. Um, I think you correctly put, Misha, um, we can talk about China and how we handle it, and you know, obviously our views about that. Um, but what we're not doing as a country is deepening our links to the region, um, more broadly, the Indo-Pacific. And there's two key... I mean, every country is important, but the two key countries for us are India and Indonesia. We're doing a little more in India than Indonesia. Which we don't talk about much no, at all. No, but by and large, we're not doing very much. And both both of our both of those countries have been bedeviled in terms of our bilateral relations with different but similar problems. In that, in both cases, the relationships have been transactional. Indonesia, in particular, um, our relationship with Indonesia is transactional. It's not deep. Going to Bali, well, going to Bali, or you know, from a government government level, you know, oh, we've got a problem with boats. Can you help us? Yeah. Or you know, live exports. It's it's all about a transaction. And with India, it's a slightly, it's a related but slightly different problem. Is that it's been stop-start. So there's been good intentions by prime ministers, etc., and there's been bilateral visits, and it sort of disappears. And why is that the case? I mean, you would have thought it's easier, perhaps, on a language basis and a cultural sure. basis. I mean, there's cultural alignment around sport. There's language curry, alignment. cricket, and Commonwealth. That's what they say about <laughs> India. Like that fixes things. Yeah. Well, let's just step back for a minute, Misha, and say let's just. In each case, let's look at why both countries are vital for us and then look at why we need to do better and what we could do better. So let's just take India. Fastest growing major economy in the world. Uh, Probably will be the second biggest economy in the world by 2050, probably, on track. Uh, Will be overtake China as the largest, most populous country in the world. Okay. Uh, You'd think that means they're pretty strategically and economically important for us. And they absolutely are. But, again, it's been stop-start. I'm hopeful, though, that perhaps we've turned the corner with India because the biggest thing we've got going for us with India is that they are now pretty consistently our largest source of permanent migrants. So we have a critical mass of, if you like, permanent ambassadors from us to them and them to us. Um, and, And, you know, those... Indian Australian Indians of Indian heritage who who now make Australia their home, uh, you know, very entrepreneurial, active in business, um, and hopefully will help us cement that relationship and stop it being about curry, cricket, and Commonwealth, um, but actually deepen it. Now, uh, there's a few things we can do for India. Um, firstly, we should be very actively. Not just say we agree, but we should, in my view, very actively promote India joining APEC. APEC's an Australian invention. Forgotten institution, largely. Yeah, forgot. It's it's sort of fallen off the the tree a bit. Keating talked about it a lot, obviously. Yeah, but there's so many more. See, when APEC was started, 
it was the main game in town. Now no you, G20. Now you've got G20, you've got East Asia Forum. You know, it's a summit season's a busy time. <laughs> um, and APEC tends to now be the forgotten cousin. Well, one, Australia should promote the reinvigoration of APEC, in my view, for all sorts of reasons. Uh, and two, we should welcome India to APEC. Um, it's an anomaly that they're not in APEC. They've been trying to join since 1994. Um, and the concern about India is... And it's legitimate concern by some of our, our colleague countries in APEC that India is generally not a globaliser, generally not pro-free trade and would be a blocker in APEC. Well, my answer to that is we have to bring them in. Yeah, you can't, you can't pretend they don't exist. They are going to be the world's second biggest economy. Let's bring them in. And we've got to give more support to those people in the Indian system arguing for openness. Now, the proportion of traders in the Indian economy has doubled. You know, the, their exports of, as a percentage of their economy and imports has doubled over the last uh, period. So they are becoming more open, openly focused. Prime Minister Modi's instincts generally on the economy are more, uh, you know, free trade and global in their approach. It's, I mean, it's still a very different economic system to ours. But there is cause for hope. So we've got to try and we've got to build our institutional bilateral links with India much more. Uh, and we should try and bring them into the regional architecture. On Indonesia, now, Indonesia is the most stable um, country basically in the world when it comes to economic growth. They just continue to grow. China does, but Indonesia's growth rate has been, if anything, even more stable. They are just consistent, quiet achievers when it comes to economic growth. So a quarter much so. of a billion people. Yeah, uh, and so much so that they will be the world's seventh biggest economy probably by 2030 and fourth biggest economy by 2050. Um, you know, they'll overtake us and Germany and UK and everybody. Um, and guess what? They're next door to us and they're not in our top ten trading partners. I mean, uh, hello. Mm. <laughs> Are we getting something wrong here? Um, yeah, well, it's, it's certainly... Yeah, yeah. yeah. And again, as I said, our relationship is transactional. We don't talk to each other. Um, here in Australia, more Australian school students studied Bahasa Indonesia in 1972 than do today. Um, university campus after university campus is closing their Indonesian faculty because they don't have enough students. Because the, the, the is flow... That, is that an emphasis question? Like, why is that happening? Um, and, he, and I should note, for, I'll give you a plug, you, <laughs> you've, uh, you've, you've taught, you know, you've learned yeah. language. So. Yeah, because I decided that for a couple of reasons, I couldn't talk the talk about walking the walk and talk about Indonesia and how important it was, for example, that we lift our Indonesian literacy. If I'm a sort of middle-aged Anglo-Celtic, um, you know, middle-class guy lecturing the country and young people that we need to do this if I wasn't prepared to do it myself. So I took myself off at age, uh, would have been 42 when I started and got myself a degree in Indonesian language. Old um, dog new tricks, mate. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um <laughs> And people say, oh, Indonesian is an easy language. I say, no, it's not. It's, it's, there's no such thing as an easy language to Absolutely. learn. Um, there are just some that are easier than others, and sure. Indonesian's at the easier end of the scale. It's still very bloody hard. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And other languages are always challenging. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it can be done. It can be done at sort of middle-aged, mid-career. But language is important because, one, it shows respect. When I go into Jakarta, and my, my language skills aren't as good as I'd like them to be. I'm constantly working to improve them. Um, but I can start a meeting with the Indonesian finance minister, for example, in Indonesian. Um, now, they often fall off their chair in surprise that a Western politician can speak Indonesian. I don't finish the meeting in Indonesian in case I agree to something I didn't mean to. But um, 
the fact that you show the respect and you can, and often when I'm there, the meetings sort of flow in and out of Indonesian English because they by and large speak English and, you know, if I can speak Indonesian, we sort of show each other respect of floating in and out of each other's language to make sure we're understanding each other. But um, it just changes completely the tenor of the meeting. I mean, it's not, if you're just speaking English, it often is pro forma, it's formulaic, it's just, well, well, here we are and thanks for your visit and Australia's a good friend and, you know, just bullshit. Um, if you actually show the respect that you've learnt their language, um, it changes the tenor of the meeting. Uh, and also, because if we're getting more young people learning Indonesian or any other Asian language, I mean, Indonesian is what I chose because you can't learn them all, but any Asian language, you, you you almost inevitably are engendering an interest in the country yeah, and the background and the history. I mean, part of my Indonesian degree is two compulsory subjects, the history of Indonesian language and Indonesian contemporary culture. No, um, but even at school, you know, you mean when when I was at school, we had a choice between Italian and Ger- and French and German. But same, yeah. But they also taught us about the culture as they're teaching us language. Same with Indonesian or Mandarin or, or you know, uh, Hindi. Um, you know, we talked about India, but how many how many schools are teaching Hindi? Um, none. And recently, ABC fact checked me, and I'm glad they did because I'd said in a speech that going back to China for a second, but it's about Asian languages. I said in the speech that there are uh, Australians of non-Chinese heritage who can speak Mandarin to a level of business competence. The number is 130. Which is, I've heard that stat for you. Yeah. It's an extraordinary It's stat. extraordinary. And it's, actually, it's actually quite damning in a way. Right? It is. And sometimes when I say it in a speech, people shake their head and say, that can't be true. Or one friend of mine you know, slammed a pencil on the table and said, you know, that, that can't be right. Uh, ABC fact check found that essentially it was right. So it was an educated guess, but yeah, it's it's even it, look, even if it's double that, even if it's two hundred and sixty, right? right? Yeah, yeah. We'll Two fifty. Yeah, right. It's out of out of twenty four million. That's a pretty poor figure. Now, yeah. our Mandarin skills aren't bad because of immigration, sure, but that's not going to get us there. You know, um, education needs to get us there as well. So we've got a massive step change to undertake in terms of our engagement with the region. Um, because to get back to your essential point, yes, we can't put all our eggs in the China basket. Geopolitically, economically, in the interests of the world, we've got to be lifting engagement with India, Indonesia, ASEAN, and and the entire region in particular. Yeah. Now, just going back to the Indian question, because you know, people sort of look at India, look at China. Now, China mm. has had this economic miracle, and India mm. tends to get a little bit forgotten. India is messier, it's democratic. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I'm sort of curious in your take of... Well, what's the future for democracy, open markets, and kind of a messier liberalism versus the Chinese model of uh, perhaps uh, state capitalism, state-owned enterprises? I mean, because at this point, a lot of people are pointing, saying, well, that model appears to be the living is bringing people out of poverty. Now, it's a convergence. Hmm. It's easier to catch up than it is to innovate yeah. and go forward. But is, you know, is there a legitimate case to say that the state-owned enterprise model, the central control model, is the way forward? Or do you feel, think that the Indian model can prevail in the long term? No, the Indian model's getting there. I mean, it's a uniquely Indian model. I mean, um, it's it's not what you'd recommend as a starting point um, with a back with a you know tradition of protectionism and and you know heavy state and um, you know uh, very heavy handed regulations and anti foreign investment. But they're getting there. Um, you know, they now have a national GST, for example. It's got seven different levels. You know, depending on the product you're buying which, you know, is not necessarily how you design it from scratch in a perfect world, but it's what they had to do to get 
get it through. Because up until then... We had to do with John Howard did yeah. a deal here on the, yeah. know, the exclusions. I mean, these things happen in politics, right? I mean, Well, up until recently, every state's had its own GST. And, and, and you know, I've seen, I've travelled through India and, you know, the trucks get stopped on the state borders to check the goods and pay make sure the right... That's all gone. Um, and they're getting there with retail and land reform, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and their growth rates are strong. Um, as I said, they're the fastest growing major economy in the world. And, um, you know probably on track to overtake the United States and become the world's second largest economy at some point in, in, in while, while you and I are still in the workforce, Misha. So, um, you know, and that's a big turnaround. So they're getting there. And, of course, um, you know, they're, they're a very robust, strong democracy that just had an election. Um, it's a remarkable feat, um, logistical feat, an Indian election, um, as is an Indonesian election. But there's there's two examples, India and Indonesia, two, two recent elections, all... By and large, comparatively, you know, smooth and straightforward, and and democratic, and both engaged in pro market reforms and continuing to grow. Yeah, and so I mean, does that give you hope for democracy in the region? Obviously, mm. uh, you know, similar um, um, outcomes in Indonesia, or you know, yep. very complex you know, archipelago style Absolutely. elections. I mean, very difficult to run them, and India is also equally complex. I mean, a lot of people say, well, democracy is on the wane. You know, China's been more assertive. The Russians have been more assertive. You know, the the traditional democracies have lost their swagger. Brexit, you know, Trump, etc. I mean, do that does that give you hope in the region? Yeah, it does. And of course, um, democratic change in uh, Malaysia, uh, an economy of similar size to us, a similar population to us. Uh, I know Malaysia pretty well, and you know, I didn't necessarily think I'd see a change of government in my lifetime um, uh, from the UMNO government. Um, and uh, I don't think many Malaysians did either. And they, 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 they certainly had elections for a long time, but, you know, one party happened to win them every time um, and, until this time. Uh, so, you know, we shouldn't discount that either. Um, you know, I'm not commenting on, on the details of Malaysian politics, but there's been a change of government, um, which was unexpected. Peaceful um, change as well, right? Peaceful change, yeah. Which is always the, the yeah. test. Yeah. yeah, and you could not have, you know, you, you, you could not have guaranteed that. Uh, a few years ago, if there was a change of government, it would be peaceful. And as I said, they, they tend to be forgotten, but they're a significant economy, roughly, or roughly comparable to us in terms of um, middle power. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's another example. And so um, one of the things I wanted to get your, your take on, you know, former Treasurer of Australia, you had the portfolio a long time in opposition. Mm. Um, one of the things that gets overlooked a lot in the debate is this question of debt, mm. global debt. We just had our, you know, there's been a lot, since the GFC, effectively mm. money around the world has been... If, if yep. not free, subsidised. And we've just cut our interest rates yet, yet again here uh, in Australia now to 1% levels that were unthinkable even five years ago. Um, you know, How concerned should we be about, one, you know, interest rates more generally, what it's doing to the global economy, and you know, and how concerning is debt when you look at some of the debt loads um, that individuals and countries are carrying? Big question. But Yeah, yeah it worries me. Um, it would have worried me if I was currently serving as Treasurer of Australia. Um if you look at the global debt levels, it's about 234% of GDP at the moment. Um, Pre-GFC, it was 208%. So we have higher exposure than we had pre-GFC as a, in the globe. Now, you got then you've got to look underneath that and say, what's driven that? Now, the good news is that a lot of that is driven by states, sovereign states. Um, about 11 trillion has been added by the United States. About five trillion has been added by China. Um, now, uh, debt created by a sovereign government has its issues, 
but in terms of economic and fiscal stability around the world, it's probably one of the less pernicious types of debt. Owing it to yourself in your own currency. Right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, some comes from, I mean, some comes from corporate in um, United States, uh, and some comes from corporate in China, which is perhaps a cause for instability, if because there's concerns about the opaqueness of some of that debt. If there is a a downturn or a problem, it could be that that's the cause of it. Um, I don't want to be too alarmist, but you know you have to be again realistic about where the where the where the shocks could come from, and that is one. <clears throat> and some is household debt, which is concerning, and that's our problem. Yeah, um, Australia and Canada household debt, world champions in that well, dubious area. Right? Yeah, that's right. Second highest in the developed world. Us, um, not a not a, a record we should be looking for. And that does expose us. If there was an international downturn, whether it be caused by, I mean, what are the causes of an international downturn? Whether it be caused by Chinese debt crisis, whether it be caused by a US recession, which is, the markets would indicate, possible, stroke likely. Yeah, not, indicate, not to get into a super wonkish discussion, no. but inverted yield curves. Yeah, about, exactly. You know, exactly right. Exactly right. So predicting you, a US recession in 12 months Exactly or so. right. Exactly right. And there's some rationale to that. Um, or it's caused by an elongated worsening trade war or it's caused by, you know, Europe stroke Brexit tipping over. I mean, Europe's not in a great spot, hasn't been in a great state. Germany's narrowly avoided a recession. Um, you know, Italy's bouncing along the bottom. Greece is, continues to be Greece. Um, you know, so Europe's not in a great state. Um, so from somewhere you could see, you can see the makings of an international downturn from one of the above. And if that happens, one of our exposures is our very high household debt. Um, I think most households can cope with an increase in interest rate. Obviously, they're going down at the moment, but even if they did start to move up, most households are factored in some buffer. What you can't cope with is unemployment, and that's where if there is a downturn and we've got very high household debt, we are in a deal. So the you've still got your job. Correct, Mm. correct. Mm. So debt does worry me. And so what about the, the, the... What's the role of governments here? Because one of the things that troubles me, and this is a global question, but, you know, Going right back to basic economics, you know, cheaper money means businesses borrow, means they invest, households borrow to an extent they consume, but largely you want to see this investment piece. Now, the rate of capital formation, so mm. i.e. people borrowing money to invest in new things to build, you know, new factories, new businesses, et cetera, is sort of on the wane. And you're seeing largely this subsidized money being driven into asset markets, into mm. property, to, into uh, shares and, mm. uh, and other sorts of forms of equities. I mean, is there a role there to make sure that we're actually, well, if we're going to, subsidised money that it goes into job creation or into things that are going to create uh, economic uh, activity? Well, ideally. I mean, that was one of the... I don't want to sort of go through the war, but that was one of the policy rationales for our negative gearing reforms, for example. Obviously, the party will go through a process of revising our policies. Um, But one of the things that drove us on negative gearing reform was that we have the most generous property tax concessions in the world. I mean, it's almost irrational not to be a property investor in Australia. Well, the tax system tells you to do it, right? Correct. I mean, you know, you Correct. launched my essay on this, but, yeah. uh, you know, I you know, I find it crazy that for every $10 that's borrowed in Australia, six bucks goes in the property market. Yeah, which... well, because we, we, we provide such incentives to do it through the tax yeah. system. People go with the incentives. Are, Correct. You know, water runs downhill. Right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's... And so that's one of the reasons why we have the second highest household debt in the world mm. is because our tax system encourages it. Now, again, as I stress... <laughs> caveat the party's got to go through the process of review but um that was there were a number of rationales for that reform one of them was housing affordability one of them was budget repair and the other one was financial stability and and high household debt and so you know 
what's the way forward here in terms of actually getting consumption going? Because you know, 60% of the economy is driven by consumption. Mm. So the focus tends to lead largely on supply. So let's get monetary policy down. We, we, well, the Reserve Bank governor's made it clear that he can only do so much, right? Mm. So uh, again, um, I mean, it's a bit hard to avoid the recent election, but we had policies on the investment guarantee to encourage businesses to invest. But we also unapologetically said, well, you can't expect people to consume more when the wages are going backwards. And so we did have some, you you might call them radical, but, you know, strong policies on the living wage, on penalty rates, um, because unless we get wages growth going, and it did require a degree of intervention because the system's not sorting it, right? Um, And this is an international problem. I don't hold this government entirely responsible for all of it, but I do hold them responsible for the lack of response and for saying there coherence in the policy, cutting cutting penalty rates, while exactly aggregate demands falling, consumption's falling. Well, we can argue about the way to increase wages, but I think we could probably agree the way to increase wages is not to cut them on weekends. Right. So, um, yeah. So uh, we 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 saw wages growth as being pretty important for you know social justice and and fairness and equality, but a pretty important economic stimulus as well, and. Um, you know, uh, uh, un- unless there is a solution found through those mechanisms or others, we are going to continue to bounce on the bottom on consumption and the economy will continue to be anemic, in my view. Well, I could uh, probably pick your brain all day, <laughs> but you're a very busy man with a lot of things to do. But before you go, yes, and one of my classic clunky segues into the lamest of all questions, Chris Bowen's Barbecue, three international guests, it's an international show, so who are the three international guests, alive or dead, that you'd have at a, a barbecue of Bowens? Ah, it's, barbecue it's, it's got alliteration, so already... Ah, there you go, go. I could get, like a, get an apron printed or something. <laughs> um, three international guests, well, and, and they can be dead, so, well, first... It might be less fun, less, but, yeah. <laughs> Well, okay, uh, to show my pure wonkishness, um, uh, if... if in the fantasy football world, uh, and they could be dead, um, Winston Churchill... I, die, I was born um, eight years after he died, um, so I never sort of walked the planet with him, but, you know, I've read basically all the, basically everything you can read about. I mean, an enormous, remarkable figure. Um, and then uh, you put Clem Attlee in the sort of similar, you see those to be in the same room as those two. Um, but then, okay, being a bit more realistic around the world, um pretty interested in the US presidential race at the moment. I wouldn't mind spending a couple of hours with Pete Buttigieg. Yeah, Mayor Pete, he's a really mm, compelling guy. Isn't yeah. He? Yeah, I'd have him over for a barbie. Yep. Um, I'd have Ruth Bader Ginsburg over as well, if she could make it. Um, pretty, you know, very, very admirable powerful figure. Intellect, yeah. Powerful intellect and an really extraordinary figure. Um, uh, and then, all right, just to mix it up completely, I'd probably have... This guy is actually a friend of mine. I've come to know him. Um, I'd have, uh, just to mix it up a bit, a guy who I think is probably the best, in my view, the best living novelist in the world, I'm biased, um, is John Boyne. He's an Irish novelist. Um, he wrote The Boy in Striped Pyjamas, um, and uh, he wrote The Absolutist, um, which I highly recommend as a compelling read. And I've come to know him. He's a good fella. Uh, an Irishman, uh, Irish novelist who loves Australia. He comes to Australia at every opportunity. That's how we got to know each other. So, I, Churchill I, might have an interesting discussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Well, he, yeah, yeah. I don't think Churchill's appeared directly in any of his novels, but he's a, um, 
he certainly has written about the the issues of the day. So, um, yeah, I'd have John over as well. All right. So we've got a novelist, a former uh, British Prime Minister. Uh, uh, and the mayor of South Bend. Uh, no, South Bend. And a president's <laughs> cancer member to South Bend. In, I added one. That's yeah. right. Well, that's right. And a former treasurer of Australia. So that'd be a great barbecue. I'd definitely like to be flying the wall on that one. But Chris Bowen, thanks for joining us. And we really appreciate your time, mate. It's been a lot of fun, Mission. Good on you. Cheers. You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz.